0: Purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: The Oracle Network.
0: Riddle Me That is a true crime podcast that deals with adult themes. Some episodes explore disturbing topics such as murder, abuse, sexual violence, drug abuse, suicide, and self-harm. Please listen at your own risk. Theories discussed in episodes may not be the opinion of the host.
1: Hi everyone, so for this episode I'm going to be interviewing Mike Morford from the Criminology podcast as well as a million other podcasts and I just wanted to let you know some updated information as we recorded this in September and we speak at the end about Gabby Petito's case and Brian Laundrie's remains have since been found so some of that information is slightly out of date. But I think it's important to keep it in because it gives Morph's insight into the case, given that he lives just a few towns away from the Laundries. We also discuss the Zodiac case, and Morph gives me the rundown on the Murdoch murders. I hope you enjoy. Welcome back to the show. I'm Jules, and this is Riddle Me That True Crime. Today, I'm really excited. I've got Mike Morford from Abject Entertainment. He's also one of the hosts of the criminology podcast, Murder in My Family, you've got missing persons and zodiac speaking did I get that right
0: yeah i th- I think that's a and I don't I might there's probably a couple more but um you know I either coast or host or co-produce or have my hand in uh one thing or another
1: so what got you started in the world of true crime
0: I've been a, a big unsolved mysteries fan ever since I was a kid I grew up in the eighties and unsolved mysteries came out in the eighties and it was you know, most kids my age, you know, when I started watching it, I was junior high or whatever I was and kids typically weren't interested in that kind of stuff. But I, when I watched it, I'd be like, wow, I can't believe that weird stuff like that happens and they can't figure it out. That's sort of just where it peaked. And, you know, every Friday night I'd record on my VCR uh, Unsolved Mysteries and then I'd watch it like the next day or something. And it was just one thing I looked forward to. And then I started reading about different stuff uh started reading about you know serial killers and some of the encyclopedias they had out back then before the uh uh, internet obviously and you know just sort of snowballed from there
1: reminds me of robin warder the two of you just like sitting around and watching robert stack when you're little
0: (laughs) yeah uh you know robin is is like the go-to unsolved mystery guy and there'll be times when I'll say, what is that episode? Who was that? And I'll just send him a message, you know, like within 10 seconds, he's sending me a response. Like, uh, like he knows it without even looking it up. It's, it's pretty cool.
1: I love going over cases with Robin from unsolved Mysteries because he's like an encyclopedia of knowledge. He remembers everything. I don't know how many times he's watched the episodes, but he remembers every tiny little detail. It's incredible.
0: And it's not even just the, the, details i think he remembers what episode what season things are i'll I'll ask him about a case I'll be like oh that was season three episode six and i'll okay that makes it easier to find when i'm going to look for something
1: which is the one episode of unsolved mysteries or the one case that really stuck with you the most
0: Mm. really um i mean there were so many good ones so many interesting ones but the one that the one where I, i really understood as a kid you don't think about evil you don't think about bad people in the world you don't know what's out there you're not you know you're not exposed to that but when, when I saw the episode about Rachel Runyon uh, who's the little girl that was killed in Utah and uh, there were rumors that she was part of a satanic uh, sacrifice and uh, that she was in a snuff film and I remember just hearing the details and saying I can't believe there's people like that in the world that do that kind of stuff and so her case really stuck with me and um, I followed it. It was one that I always hoped would be solved. And then I, you know, got in contact with her mom and, and her and I started corresponding and I was, you know, I had the honor of having her on my show. I, I think we covered Rachel's case on criminology and on the murder of my family. Uh, and I'm, it's just one of the cases that's always stuck with me. I have a short list of cases and a lot of the cases I have have been solved. Thankfully, uh, on my short list of, of ones that have stuck with me and uh Rachel's one that I still hope will be solved one day.
1: So what was the first true crime podcast that you ever listened to?
0: Oh that's you know that's a good question. Um it, it was generation why it had to be because uh Aaron reached out to me and said we're gonna do the Zodiac uh show would you like to be on and I have a had a Zodiac website and I said sure, and you know I think I even went out and picked up a microphone, one of those little portable game type mics that you know just throw on to just to be able to talk because I wasn't in the gaming or anything. I didn't have any microphones, and you know we just chatted and, and just had this whole conversation over the over the headphones, and ta- you know I talked about the Zodiac case, and uh, it was just really cool to listen back to it and see what they had done and how they made it into an episode. And I started thinking that that's a really cool thing to be able to have shows where you can listen to different topics. You can do it right from your home. Um, and I just started listening to other ones. I listened to Robbins pretty early and who else true crime garage. And uh, you know, and now there's like a million of them out there, but back then the, the selection wasn't as great. So, um, but that's what got me interested. And I said, you know what, let me try and do my own. And then I could talk about the cases I want to talk about, and and it went from there.
1: What was the first podcast that you started?
0: It was Criminology. Yeah, I got lucky. I teamed up with uh, Mike Ferguson. He was already uh, hosting True Crime all the time, and we we corresponded a little bit. And he uh, always wanted to do a Zodiac podcast, and there hadn't been one, which was surprising. There wasn't an in-depth one that had been done. So I said, well, I, I think, I don't know anything about podcasting, but I have a ton of Zodiac material and I can definitely, you know, we could, I could write several episodes. And, and so that's how we did season one. And I think we had 10 episodes or something like that. And it was, you know, I, I sort of cringe when I listen to myself. I still cringe when I listen to myself uh, on a podcast. But back then, I, you know, if I listen to the old ones, I really cringe. And it's funny. We I was so bad just reading and talking at the same time that I, it would take. I'm not exaggerating. It would probably take six hours to record a one-hour episode. I was so it was awful. um But I, I guess just like anything else, you sort of get more comfortable doing it. And I still get complaints on some of the reviews. I try not to read reviews, but they're like, "Oh, Mike sounds so." Uh, I don't know what the word they use. Uh, so, uh, blah, you know, he's just reading. He doesn't have any emotion. And, you know, not everybody's got like a natural flowing voice for for uh, the podcast. But I, I feel like I'm definitely better than I was when I first started.
1: It's so funny when you look at the growth, right? When you go back to those beginning episodes and it's like, I'm the same as you. When I listen to my own voice, I can't even stand the sound of my own voice, let alone how I sound on other podcasts or the way that I speak. So I too try to avoid reading reviews because when it's something about the way you deliver it or your voice, and it's sort of like, ah, there's only so much I can do to fix that. So I think you do a really great job.
0: Well, I, I, thanks. I appreciate that. And I, the one thing I've learned is you could get 999,000 positive reviews and there'll be that one, uh, that, is negative and it'll still, you know, you're human. It makes you uh, uh, say, wow, I I wish they uh, didn't give me that because, you you know, your pride gets hurt a little bit. But um, the lesson I learned was you're never going to, you know, impress everyone all the time and make everyone happy. So I just concentrate on putting out the best show I can and the overwhelming majority of people that I hear from, it's all positive. So, you know, I sort of focus on that.
1: Yeah, I think it's better to try to focus on it because I'm the same as you. I think most people are. They can read nine positive reviews and one negative, and do the positive ones stick? Like not typically, right?
0: Yeah, it's it's again, it's tough sometimes as a as a person to to get some negative feedback and, and not have it uh, sort of you know stick with you.
1: Yeah, it's true. So when did you start Murder in My Family?
0: I started that, I, I think in 2000, well, was it 2018 or uh, I think, yeah, I think it was 2018. I think I was doing criminology for a year, year and a half, something like that. And I had this vision of, you know, I, I knew a lot of people and came into a lot of con- people uh, came into contact with them who had murdered sisters. So I was originally going to call it the the, mur- the, my sister's murder. And, um, Someone talked me out of it. They said you, you're really pigeonholing yourself there. You're only going to get you know so many people and be able to, which is a good thing because I actually that is true. Uh, so I changed it to the murder of my family, so I could you know discuss anyone you know if they had a child, a, a parent, a sibling, whatever it was. Uh, I, I felt that would you know serve everyone a little bit more if I could help tell their story. Uh, so in hindsight, that was a good thing changing that.
1: What has been the one case that you've covered on that on your on that specific show that's really stuck with you?
0: Mm, there's, there's so many they're all difficult. They're, it's tough talking to any family member that's lost someone and uh, they're dealing with a lot of grief. Any time I deal with uh, the murder of a child, especially like a baby, you know the younger the harder it is. You know, I've got an episode coming out this weekend, for example, that's going to ha- be the case of a murdered baby. And uh, it's just, it's hard to do. And I feel like a lot of people don't want to listen to that. I also feel like a lot of podcasters steer away from it. Um, and I understand and I respect them wanting to do that. And I, but uh, for me, I feel like if I don't tell their story, that in a way they're it's a disservice to them, they're being forgotten. You know, so just because it's hard to tell their story doesn't mean that, um, I you know it shouldn't be done. And I've covered a couple murders of of very young children, and this is going to be another one this weekend.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think it's really important to tell the stories of children. Like I remember I covered Eric Carter Landine, who has the podcast True Consequences, his brother Jacob Landine's story. And it's one of those ones that like, it will stick with you and it will impact you emotionally. And it's hard sometimes as a podcaster to be able to separate those negative emotions. How do you deal with that personally?
0: Well, it's funny because it's Jacob's case that I'm covering this this weekend. Is it really? So, yeah, um, I, it's hard to, to, you know, I have to talk to someone and, and sort of keep it together and not, you know, as a father, not be thinking about, you know, what would happen if if this happened to my children and I have to stay on, on point and try and focus on talking and follow up questions and and things like that. At the same time, you know, the stuff they're telling me, it's like, it's just horrible. So it's hard to to focus on what I'm trying to do while I'm hearing these different details coming out. So you, you sort of have to, um, you sort of have to focus in two directions. You can't, obviously what you're hearing is, is sticking with you and it's, it's, uh it's heavy, but at the same time, you need to keep talking to them and not, you know, not break down and uh, not be able to talk to them because they're trying to tell a story. And uh, that's what I try and do is, is focus on that. And then afterwards, usually it's like a real mental drain for the rest of the day after I do something like that, I'll just, you know, want to turn the computer off and just go de-stress and do something else.
1: What does self-care look like for you? Like what do you do to decompress after you cover really difficult cases?
0: Yeah, I've really, you know, I'll, I'll, I i will i have not really watched a lot of TV, but sometimes just watching like TV, something that's just fake, there's, you know, fiction, um, and just turning on a show that has no, you know, no one's getting hurt for real. No one, you know, it's just a way to escape sort of, and I'll watch whatever show it it is. And, and for an hour or whatever, I'll be like, okay, I didn't even think about all the bad stuff. I'm just watching this fake TV show where, you know, at the end of it, I know everyone is okay. Nothing really happened to them. And then I can sort of build back up the, the strength to get back to dealing with real life stuff.
1: Another podcast I forgot to mention in the beginning that's really good, and I want to know how you started it is Three Men in a Mystery. Uh,
0: well, <laughs> Three Men in a Mystery. Uh, we, I teamed up with John Lorden from he's a huge YouTuber and Gray Hughes. Uh, he's also a big YouTuber. Uh, I'm not uh, into YouTube. I just uh, it's just not my thing. Uh, but a lot of people are are into it and do really well with it. But we sort of you know, I was interested in a lot of the cases they were covering and, you know, obviously we knew each other. We met at, uh, I think we met at CrimeCon for the first time. Um, and we just one day started chatting, you know, what would we, would we ever want to do a project together? And then since it was the three of us, I think it was John that suggested Three Minute of Mystery, which was a pretty good name. And we thought, okay, we'll do one case per season and we'll do a deep dive and you know, We'll we'll take a family that needs answers or has a unsolved uh, case that they're trying to work on, and uh, that's what we'll focus on. So I think we did three seasons all together. We haven't rallied around to discuss a fourth because I guess we're all so busy, but it'll be interesting to see if we do another one, what it will be.
1: You guys all have so much on the go.
0: Especially John Lourdes. <laughs> well, I mean – John is, I give him and Gray both credit because they both do. uh, John is such a perfectionist as far as production and scheduling. And I mean, he's got literally every minute of every day down to the minute allotted. And so he's constantly producing. And then um, Gray does these nightly marathons. He does like three hour shows every night. And he does different topics. You know, sometimes it'll be old, unheard of cases. Sometimes it'll be breaking news cases. And every night he dives into it and goes deep over like three hours. And the next night he does it again. Um, so I sort of, you know, I admire that because it's hard to produce on a daily level like that. Because, you know, the time it takes to research to put out those shows, uh, you know, how long it takes to do all that and to do that on a daily basis, is, it seems tough.
1: That's intense. Three hours a day. I can't even imagine it would be draining to do no research and to just get in front of a camera and to talk for three hours a day. I don't know how he does that.
0: Yeah. He, he, he does it at night. He does it late at night too. And he's on the West coast. So it's, it's literally like, I think it's usually like 9 PM, to midnight Eastern time. Um, and He's a he's a no nonsense guy, which is which is pretty cool because he doesn't put up with BS. If someone says, "Well, could Bigfoot have come down in a UFO and abducted her and brought her right? away?" He'll, he'll just say, "No, no, you're you're being an idiot." <laughs> you know, he doesn't pull any punches, and um I, I I like that. But he comes off as a little abrasive because of that. But um and and John, you know, working with him, he's really the nicest guy in the world. He's a A very uh, giving person and um, donates a lot. So uh, he's one of the probably the nicest guy and the kindest person I've ever worked with in True Crime. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
1: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.
0: No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry.
1: Yeah, that really comes across in his videos. Like I remember his early stuff that he did with Elisa Lam, and then I became a huge fan as he started to build on that and bring a lot of attention to both missing persons cases and unsolved cases. You can tell he's a very empathetic person.
0: Yeah, it's genuine too. I know some people that you know won't name any names, but I think I know some people that are not genuine in in what they say and what they do. And John is one of those people. What you see what you hear. That's, that's what he really is.
1: So I want to know what started your interest in the Zodiac case.
0: Well, you know, going back to like the unsolved mysteries days when I was a teenager, one of the, once I was hooked on that show, I went out and I remember get seeing an encyclopedia. It was like a serial killer encyclopedia or something like that. And I turned to the Zodiac page they had, and there's this guy with the executioner's hood and, you know, just, Medieval-looking with a knife on his hip, and then they had pictures of the coded messages he sent to the press. And I was like, "Wow, that sounds really sinister." And uh, in 1986, the uh, Zodiac book came out by Robert Graysmith, and I got a copy of it. And I had to do a book report, and I chose that <laughs> to do the book report on. And I remember the teacher when I got the paper back, she was like. Uh, I think I got a B or some, whatever it was. And and she wrote in a big red marker or subject matter with a big question mark. Like she wasn't too happy with what I chose. But, you know, I thought I did a good job and, uh, you know, just happened to be something that she probably wasn't used to seeing from from students at that time.
1: Yeah. One of those ways to scare your teachers. Right. We, <laughs> I remember a science fair. I think I was in sixth grade and me and my friend were like, well, let's cover something that's really current and something that matters in the world right now. Let's cover HIV and AIDS. And this was in the nineties. Right. And the teacher was like, Mm-mm. did not want, was like, not into our science fair project and the fact that we covered this somebody who made one of those volcanoes ended up winning you know the ones i'm talking about right (laughs) oh yeah yeah
0: yeah Yeah. that's well i i guess that's the some of the subjects are taboo or uh people don't want to be comfort in in, confrontational or do anything that's edgy uh so i I think uh, people shy away which is when it comes to podcasting it's the same thing there's a lot of people that won't touch certain topics and then other people that are willing to to push the envelope a little bit.
1: So when you started your podcast, so when you did criminology, you did your first what like 10 episodes or whatever on the Zodiac Killer. Do you want to because this is one case that I am definitely not an expert on and I don't know if the listeners are. Do you want to go through like what are basically the canonical kills of the Zodiac or like the victims that are known to be from the Zodiac Killer?
0: Yeah, um, you have David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen were the first uh, victims of the Zodiac. They were killed on December 20th, 1968, in the outskirts of Vallejo, which is uh, a blue-collar town, probably about, I think it's about 30 miles from San Francisco. And at the time, they were murdered, nothing happened, they couldn't solve it, and they were just wondering who would do such a thing to kill these two young teenagers and then you know, in July of 69 about seven months later eight months later uh, another attack happened a few miles from there at the place called Blue Rock Springs and a girl named Darlene Farron and, and her uh, friend Mike Mageau were sitting in their car when someone came up and shot them attacked them and the MO was very similar to what they think happened to the first two kids um and again it was sort of why would someone do this what's the motive but interestingly you know with half hour 40 minutes later after the shooting someone called the, the Vallejo police and said uh you know you can find these two kids I just shot them you know and gave them directions and you know made sure that he told the uh dispatcher that he was responsible so that was the first time of him sort of connecting himself, which was unusual for a killer to do. Most killers, they don't want the police to have any clue who they are. This guy was someone that was bragging about it less than a half hour after shooting them. And Mike survived. Uh, Darlene didn't. And then there was another attack uh, the following September at Lake Berryessa in Napa County. And in that one, which is the most, one of the most sinister ones sort of of all, um, the zodiac showed up they didn't know his zodiac at the time but he showed up with a executioner style hood on well uh they were picnicking at uh lake Berryessa and you know it was brian hartnell and cecilo Shepard. and they were college students and he basically told them look i'm I'm here to rob you i just want your money i want your car keys i'm an escape prisoner uh and i'm going to mexico so just cooperate with me and everything will be cool so they didn't know he was a Zodiac. He didn't say I'm the Zodiac. Um, so they just thought, okay, it's a guy that's really robbing us. So they cooperated, and he had Cecilia tie, tie up Ryan, and then he tied up Cecilia. And then once they were bound, he pulled out a knife and started stabbing them. Um, Cecilia died, Brian lived, and he was able to recount what happened. And then in October, uh, a month later, uh, the next month, uh, Paul Stein, a cab driver, was shot execution style in his cab in San Francisco, which was very different from the earlier attacks. Um, and in that one, he sent a, a piece of Paul Stein's bloody shirt to say, Hey, I'm the, uh, the killer of the cab driver. So, you know, this string of phone calls from this person saying, Hey, I did this. You had a string of letters. He started writing letters. To, steadily. And the, kid, the murders only happened, the confirmed murders only happened from uh, December 68 to October 69. After that, he was all about writing letters because I think he just wanted the attention that he was getting in the newspapers. So he wrote on a regular basis from 1971. Uh, and then he disappeared for three years. And he came back in 1974 and wrote a handful of letters. And then after that, there was nothing from him. So he sort of slipped away without ever being identified and it was uh just a, a real uh again not what we typically see in cases where uh, a killer's operating they don't go looking for attention they they want to slip away and not be caught not give the police anything to work with this guy was bragging sending coded messages saying hey if you figure out this code you'll know who i am Things like that. So he wanted the attention, and I think that's what it sort of became for him: was getting that attention, not so much the murders.
1: Do you think he wanted to be like a modern day Jack the Ripper and have that type of notoriety and like this carefully crafted image?
0: Yeah, I think I think to some extent, you know, there were some even even some language in some of his letters that mimicked Jack the Ripper a little bit, and there hadn't really been a lot of killers since Jack the Ripper that communicated with with the authorities the way he did. Um, so I think he sort of came from that, you know, that vein of, of killer that craved attention. And part of his satisfaction was getting attention, uh, not necessarily just killing.
1: Yeah. Like a BTK, but we saw BTK's downfall and that he just returned basically to write letters and to get that notoriety back. So he wouldn't fade into obscurity. And in doing so he gave himself away.
0: Yeah, and I I think, you know, Zodiac, because of the lack of technology back then, there weren't, you know, street, there weren't uh, cameras on every uh, traffic light, there weren't, you know, cell phones, there weren't uh, electronic, you know, ways to track everything, there wasn't DNA, there weren't fingerprints, I mean, there were fingerprints, but not where you could, you know, lift DNA potentially off them, off the letters um so those kinds of things hindered the investigation not to mention all the crimes took place in different jurisdictions and those jurisdictions didn't communicate with each other or share information with you, with each other i think that really played into him slipping through the cracks and and not being found after 50 plus years
1: so who are the main suspects in like who the authorities think or who the public thinks or case experts like yourself think could potentially be the Zodiac killer.
0: Well, the most famous uh, person is Arthur Lee Allen. If anyone watches the movie Zodiac uh, by David Fincher, which is a tremendous movie, by the way, they, they feature him. The book uh, Zodiac is, is mainly based on him and sort of focuses on, on him as a suspect. But he's been ruled out a few different ways, handwriting, prints, uh, DNA, uh, a few different things have ruled him out. Um, there's still a lot of people that think he's a good suspect, but there were a lot of old-time suspects like uh, Rick Marshall, uh, Lawrence Kane. Um, even the, the Unabomber has been named as a suspect. Um, and I personally, you know, I have my own suspect that I found recently that I'm, I'm actually pretty confident is the, the Zodiac. Um, so, I, you know, I'm working with police on that and just waiting for, you know, taking it slow and seeing if they can find what they need to to make that connection.
1: Did you watch that documentary on Edward Wayne Edwards? I didn't. It was a little bit bizarre and that everything was attempting to be tied to Edward Wayne Edwards. Like, oh, he killed Lacey uh, Peterson and he's responsible for the Atlanta child murders and he's the Zodiac killer. Did you hear about that connection?
0: Yeah, I heard I that's why I I sort of steered clear of that, because I knew going in that the person that helped make that had accused them of dozens and dozens of crimes, high profile crimes all over the the country over a series of decades. Uh, And I was like, you know, I just there's no truth to it. Um, So I, I didn't bother to watch it.
1: Yeah, I don't really think you missed much. It was sort of like, okay, I get that maybe they could have tied it to the Zodiac Killer because he was known to have done Lover's Lane murders, but it was a bit of a stretch to be like, this guy went and then he killed Lacey Peterson and all these different murders outside his initial MO. It was such a stretch and so fantastical that it was sort of like, okay, guys, I think you're taking this a bit far.
0: Yeah, that's that's probably the... the um thing that really just made me not want to watch it although he does have an interesting link to the zodiac case he had lived in california for a time and he had spent time in a prison called deer lodge prison in montana and that's one of the things that zodiac mentioned at uh, lake barry when he attacked them. he was an escaped prisoner from deer lodge so that was always an interesting tidbit but again i don't think there's anything to it uh, as far as him being involved
1: there was something to do with the making of leather or it was believed that like Edward Wayne Edwards would have learned how to make things like an executioner's leather hood or something while in Deer Lake prison or something along those lines. It's been a while since I watched it. So there was some interesting connections, but it seemed like tenuous at best.
0: Yeah, I, I liken it to the um, the podcast, the, the one about the guy who claimed that his uh, father was the Black Dahlia murderer. Um, he also claims that his father was the Zodiac killer. And I, I know just uh, in some some dealings with him and some of the nonsense he put out there about the Zodiac case. Uh, as soon as I heard he was doing a podcast claiming his dad killed the Black Dahlia, I was like, I know this guy's just full of crap. Um, so I had no interest in, in listening to that podcast because it's just complete nonsense as far as I'm concerned.
1: So what do you think about the updates in the Faith Hedgepath case that they finally arrested somebody?
0: It's, that's a long time coming. Um, it, I, I haven't actually, this week, I've been so busy with so many other things. I haven't looked at too much at the guy they arrested, but um, from what I understand, he wasn't on the radar. Um, and I do feel bad because I think the blame was placed with people in Faith's inner circle um, and her roommate and people she knew and things like that for all this time. There's been a lot of suspicion cast on them. And I, I think an arrest of someone who's not connected to them maybe clears their name up a little bit and takes a little bit of that, uh, that off the top of their, their head.
1: Unless we find out that like, there was some connection and that the two of them were dating or seeing each other or something. Because I know Derek Levastor is a pretty good expert on the case and he questioned the DNA that was found on faith. I know when on their crime weekly podcast and originally on the breaking homicide episode. So like, if this was DNA left behind from say like a sexual encounter prior, and maybe this person didn't come forward. So, I mean, I think I personally thought that Karina had to have known more. Did she do it? Like, did I think that I have no idea who did it, but it felt like in this small window of time, the faith was left alone in that apartment that somebody would just kind of come upon this unlocked door and perpetrate this crime on faith. It just seems so unbelievable. So I don't know. Do you think there's a connection to her with this guy or it was just random?
0: I don't know. It's, it's, that's an interesting thing to to think about. You're right to have such a small window for uh, some creeper to just come in and at the right time. And that part seems kind of hard to, to believe. It'll be interesting, I think, to see where the case goes as far as him going to court. Does he take a plea deal? He takes a plea deal that will tell me that, yeah, he, he did it and he knows he's caught. If he didn't do it, uh, you know, I could see him trying to fight it. A lot of these cases that have been solved uh, with DNA and genealogy especially are not making it to court because the guys are taking plea deals because they know they're, they're basically hung. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if he gets to trial and and what happens at trial what details come out.
1: Yeah, I really can't wait to hear what happens. Like I'm so excited for her family if this will be a conviction and this individual did indeed murder Faith and his DNA didn't get there some other way. I'll be really happy for Roland and Connie because they'll finally have some resolution and justice hopefully will come, you know, swiftly after that because it's got to be so difficult having that happen to your child and then just having it, you know, they tested hundreds of people. And you'd think within that circle of people, they would have found that DNA profile. And I think everyone knew that Parabon nanolab shot of, you know, the composite of what this individual may look like. And it just sort of hung over the case. And then we've had a big couple of weeks in true crime lately.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, it's crazy that, and the, uh, the snapshot, the sketch of him, and I've had a lot of people say, oh, it doesn't look like him. It doesn't look, I think it, it definitely looks like him in my opinion. Um, the, the thing that those sketches can account for are things like if they're, if they're heavier, if they have facial hair, if they have a certain hairstyle. So when they create that image, you know, there's certain things they can't account for. And, uh, but I think if you, if you looked at a, a younger, slimmer version of that guy. I think he looks very similar to that sketch. Um, so it, to me, it shows that it's, they're, they're, they're pretty accurate. At the same time, I, I think if you can do the genetic genealogy, you can sort of skip past the, the whole sketch thing. Because a sketch, it, it doesn't always look like the person that can sometimes cause confusion because someone will get overlooked or they'll say, oh, uh, I, you know, I think this guy might have done it, but he doesn't look anything like that sketch, so I'm not going to call the police. Um, I I think the sketch can also do a disservice because of that.
1: If it doesn't look at all like the person, you automatically start eliminating people because you're like, Oh, it doesn't look like this person doesn't look like this person better not put my attention there. But I totally agree with you. I think he looks like the snapshot. It's just maybe 40 pounds ago, right? Like when he was quite a bit slimmer. I think if you would peel off some of the extra weight, he would look very, very similar and what was it like years ago that this was done? And like you said, it doesn't account for things like hairstyle, facial hair, fluctuations in weight. So there's plenty of things that you can't capture in that snapshot because they're hidden and changing variables.
0: Yeah. It'll be interesting to see if someone finds a photo of him from earlier and and sort of compares it to that snapshot and uh, to see how close it is.
1: So let's talk about the Murdoch murders and what's been going on with the Murdochs. You recently, I'm going to link this in the show notes. You and Mike recently covered this on criminology and I listened to the episode. I've listened to the Sinisterhood episode as well. And I want you to go through some of the details with me because this is such a confusing case. Okay, So we have Paul Murdoch and, okay, so there was Mallory, Miley, and Morgan. Connor and Anthony who were all together the night of that oyster roast who got on the boat together. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then then what happened after they got on the boat?
0: Well, so Paul is drinking and he crashes the boat and uh, she was killed. Uh, The, the, the whole group is, is in chaos. The the police come out, Uh, they're taken to the uh, hospital. And meanwhile, they're back at the scene looking for her She's off the boat and they eventually find her. She's drowned. So that that's sort of starts the entire chaos that, that starts to drag on the, the family's name because they're, they're well known in that area. Um, and the, the funny thing is, and, and uh, this is just a little behind the scenes type of thing for, for podcasters. There were a lot of spellings of names in this episode that didn't, the spelling didn't match the pronunciation. So I actually we we write in the notes. Okay, this name is spelled this way, pronounced this way, and there were the names of of different towns, the names of different people, uh, even uh, Murdoch. The the last name looks like it should be Murdoch, you know. So we we took care to pronounce everything correctly. But the funny thing is, when we're so focused on that that we started calling Alex Murdoch, Alec Murdoch, we started calling him Alex in the episode and neither of us caught it. So now we put the episode out and it's like, everything says Alex, even those names pronounced Alec, Alec, it's spelled Alex. Um, But by then the episodes already out there. And, you know, when that happens, what can you do about it? (laughs) You know, there's nothing you can do. Um, And, and, We had a lot of people that listened that loved the episode and we had one person reach out and say, by the way, his name is pronounced Alec. And I was like, yeah, we figured that out after we released the episode. But when you have a case this crazy with this many moving parts uh, and names that are a a little bit weird, um, it's a lot to keep track of. So when you do an episode like this, it's, it's crazy
1: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com.
0: Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Um, but getting back to uh, that boat crash, after that happened, the family sort of had a little bit of a uh, a black mark on it. The name, and they were very popular in that area. They were, you know, their name went back a hundred years. Um, and it started, I think, when Alec was at the hospital, telling everyone what to say, what not to say. And at the time they were mad at him because his son had just caused this horrible accident. And they started, you know, pushing back saying, just leave us alone, get out of here. And they got the impression early on that Alec was trying to uh, cover something up.
1: Connor was pretty pissed at the scene, right? Like this was his girlfriend, Mallory Beach, who was ejected from the boat and Connor was pretty seriously injured. I think in the episode you said he had a broken jaw
0: or yeah, dislocated and, jaw. Yeah, and you know when the police arrived, they actually uh, it seemed like they were about to fight because he was so mad at Paul, and that Paul was just nonchalant, just like it wasn't a big deal. And um, he called him out pretty early on, and and you know the transcript of what was said. Uh, is is pretty telling that he was angry and that he wasn't wasn't pulling any punches.
1: I think like the fact that they almost got in a crash earlier, that Paul was clearly too inebriated to be driving. They almost crashed earlier. That should have been, you know, foreshadowing to events to come. But then they go and get, what, more shots at a bar?
0: Yeah, it's just like the party. And these are all, you know, just to point out, these are all people that aren't 21. These are, you know, 19 year years old, I think they were for the majority. Um, So they're drinking under the age, using fake IDs, getting served by people that knew them. It seems there was some of that going on too. So, you know, just a case of uh, this is a local rich kid that's sort of, you know, doing what he wants to do in that town. And that's how it all started.
1: And that kind of I guess the attitude or the affect and demeanor of Paul. I think they had a nickname for him, right? Like they'd call him Timmy when he was drinking because he was just a meaner. Was the way you described it. I think.
0: Yeah, just like this little alter. Well, I don't know if it was an alter ego. Maybe he's a a jerk most of the time, but uh, I think when he drank, it really came out, and they they noticed it. And it got to a point that before the accident, they all basically said, "Let's just call it a night and go back to the." Doc, and we'll catch an Uber or something and, and get home.
1: After this happens, people start talking about Paul Murdoch, and Stephen Smith is brought up with a connection to Buster Murdoch and Paul Murdoch. Can you explain that connection and that situation?
0: Yeah, so Stephen Smith was someone that was killed in a mysterious way. He was found uh, on a outskirts of some deserted road, and just laying down in the middle of the road as if he had laid down and the police theorized that he had been hit by a car. And, but there were no signs of obvious uh, trauma, just minor trauma. There were no signs of broken glass. any. there were no break uh, marks from someone breaking. There were no pieces of bumper or plastic any place. Um, so they felt that he possibly had been struck by a car. But then on the other hand, where was all the, the evidence of that? And they started thinking maybe he was killed elsewhere, and left there. So that sort of was a case that they, you know, didn't really do anything with it. Sort of just lingered. Mom didn't get any answers about what happened to him. Uh, but it came out that you know Paul and Buster knew him, and there were rumors, and a lot of this case is based on rumors. Uh, unfortunately, there's not a lot of details yet, but uh, that are confirmed. But some of the rumors among locals were that since he was a gay man that he may have been uh, having a relationship with Paul's brother and again not confirmed but that was the rumor that was going around that they had some kind of relationship that they were hiding and perhaps he was killed for whatever reason whatever reason you want to insert because he was going to expose him or they got into a fight or any any number of different things but that's the rumor that that went around that he was responsible in some way connected to it
1: so what about the housekeeper, Gloria? She took like a fall down the stairs or something and died weeks later or months later.
0: Yeah. So it, it, it's just this family that people connected to him just seem to keep going, you know, having bad luck. She fell in in the Murdoch home and she later died. She, she lingered for a while, went to the hospital and uh, eventually succumbed to her injuries. Um and at the time, none of this crazy stuff that's going on locally, you know, lately, I should say, um, was going on. So they just, I, I think this was widely just dismissed as an accident. You know, she fell in the home, but there were rumors going around that they pushed her down the stairs or maybe she tripped over their dog and they covered it up. But at the time of her death, they didn't really think too much of it. It just seemed like a random accident you know, the family hadn't been murdered by this point. So there wasn't too much to look at. Now, in hindsight, now they're going back and looking at every strange case connected to this family. But at the time, it was they didn't think it was that unusual.
1: So do you want to talk a little bit about the murder of Alex's wife, Maggie Murdoch and Paul Murdoch?
0: Yeah. So this is where the case takes, a you know, this, this steady thing of weird events gets even stranger is. Um, one night Alec comes home and finds his wife and son, uh, shot on, on his lawn near the, they have a big property with dog kennels and they were somewhere between the house and the dog kennels. And he calls 911. And we, we play the, uh, the, the 911 call that police released in, in the episode. You can hear him. He's frantic. He sounds, um, you know like he's they're asking questions and he's sort of tripping over the questions like maybe he's like in shock it sounds like and he keeps asking when are you coming how fast can you get here and they're trying to get information and he's you know what you might expect you know someone's not going to be in a, a perfect sense of mind to answer questions like like normal in that situation but that's what it sounded like to me at least um you know you play that for a thousand different people and Half of them might say, "Oh, he sounds really guilty. He's hiding something." To me, it sounded like he was genuinely surprised and upset. But you know, whatever reason, uh, everyone's a little bit different when it comes to that. So, but the police show up. They determine that that his wife and son had been shot, had been killed, and there were two different guns used. Uh, now, Alex uh, had an alibi. He was out at his parents'. Um, if I recall correctly, and the, the people there, her care, the caregivers of one of his parents was, were basically saying, yeah, he was here uh, when this happened. So it, it seemed like originally that he had no connection to it. And But then I, I think what really started on social media really started a buzz was because people started saying, well, what about this Stephen guy that died? What about this boating accident? What about the glory of the the housekeeper? I think people started talking about all that stuff and it really got going that there were a lot of crazy things happening with this family.
1: Weren't there multiple guns used too?
0: Yeah, it was two different kinds of guns, two different guns. They haven't said too much about it. I mean, I think one of the rumors was that one was a shotgun, one was a rifle, um, which could mean two different shooters. Um, It'd be hard for two different people to, You know, one person to carry two different long guns, a rifle and a shotgun, and to shoot one, put it down and shoot the other one. So it could indicate that there was a second person there. But police haven't, you know, as they're keeping a lot of
1: stuff tight to the vest, they haven't released a lot of information. Wasn't there rumors that one of the guns belonged to the Murdochs?
0: Yeah, later on, uh, there's a rumor that came back that at least one of the guns belonged to them. And again, that's not something that police have, have confirmed.
1: Who do you think was the primary target based on the information?
0: Well, you know, um, yeah, I haven't thought about that. I, I actually, it's a good question <laughs> because there's so many, so many possibilities. That's what's crazy about this case. So you've got a lot of people that are mad at this family. You know, there's, there's rumors that are connected to this guy, Stephen's death. There's rumors that they had something to do with Gloria's death. So you could see someone, Seeking vengeance for one of those things, you've got the boating accident. You can see uh, people being angry about that and seeking vengeance. Um, But then you also have uh, rumors that uh, the Murdochs were going through marital problems, uh, marital issues, and that she was living in the family's uh, second home. Uh, and And it it's been. speculated that is because of the pending lawsuits coming against uh, them for Paul, that they were going to divorce and, uh, you know, keep the money in in the mom's name uh, so that she wouldn't be sued, wouldn't lose the the family fortune or whatever money they had. Um, so that's, that's one of the theories out there, but it could be again, yeah, there's revenge, you um, uh, That kind of thing is is a possibility. And then it comes out that, well, you know, not to get ahead of ourselves, but we'll definitely talk about it. I'm sure there's there's uh, some financial gain is is a possibility as well.
1: And wasn't Alec Murdoch as well? Like he was having some financial issues like there wasn't as much money as there appeared to be was one of them. But also he was having some issues with what drugs or alcohol.
0: Yeah, it came out that he was uh, seeking help for opioid addiction, which is what's been reported. I don't know if that's accurate, but that's what people seem to think it is. He also got in trouble for embezzling money from his uh, practice. And, uh, you know, his brother is one of the, the people at that practice. So they're sort of an awkward position. They obviously fired him or he resigned and, and they wanted to part ways, but there was an investigation that was going to come from it as well. Um so you, you've got all this stuff going on, the, the addiction, money problems, marital problems, perhaps embezzlement, just a snowball of strange uh, things going on that make maybe Alec seem like he's not the, the perfect, the world's not as perfect as it seems to, you know, the outside, when you peel back the layers, things don't seem to be that that good.
1: And given those circumstances, it at least opens up the possibility like like you said, though, there's like so many different potential motivations, but there could be like a family annihilator type situation where you often see in those cases where the financial, you know, walls have come crashing down and somebody believes that like their loved ones are just an extension of them. And so they then go and either to like spare them the embarrassment or spare them a life without, you know, the level of affluence that has been afforded to them for their lives up until this point. They decide to end the lives of their family members, and usually end their own lives after. But that, I mean, that's at least one of the possibilities. But like you said there is just so many other ones; it's it's mind boggling when you've got three other deaths, like Mallory Beach, and then Stephen Smith and Gloria. What was her last name?
0: Uh, I, I don't remember off the top of my head.
1: Yeah, I can't remember either.
0: Uh, something with an S. I yeah. When you hit fifty. <laughs> the, the, the names start not being right there at the top of your head.
1: I'm horrible with names period. So, <laughs> um, okay. So then we have this, that weird incident where Alec Murdoch is said that there is like an attempt on his life or he's shot in the back of the head, but the degree to which he's injured seems to vary whether you go by one report or the other, like it starts out being not very serious. And then the later report is it is serious.
0: Yeah, so he calls nine one one day nine one one. He's out driving, uh, I think to Charlotte, if I remember correctly, and he said that he got a flat tire and he pulled off and he's in the process of getting ready to change the tire. And a, a truck drove by and turned around. This is a secluded road and came back and made some small talk and then opened fire on him. And he was struck in the head. Um, he called nine one one. And said, I've been shot, I was changing tire, I got shot. And the police get there, he's gone. And someone had, a passerby had come along and saw him and picked him up and brought him to the hospital. Um, from there, he was airlifted, uh, which uh, makes it seem like it's pretty serious if he's going uh, someplace else. And there's a little bit of a, 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 some confusion You know, he uh, was reported to be at one place as attorney said that he was at another place. Um, So there's a little bit of confusion about that. And then, as you mentioned, there was some confusion to whether this headshot was serious or whether it grazed him. Um, And I don't know that that was particularly cleared up uh, by police, but given the fact he went home pretty quickly, uh, and wasn't in the hospital for weeks and weeks, I would think that it's uh, safe to say it wasn't a uh, major.
1: Yeah, and weren't some people questioning or wasn't there rumors about it potentially being self-inflicted? Yeah, there there were uh,
0: people that said, well, maybe tried to uh, take his own life and uh, and it just wasn't a success or he changed his mind. and But there were no guns or anything like that found at the scene. There was nothing that police could find to, to link him to shooting himself at the time.
1: Well, if a passerby had picked him up, I guess he somehow could have had the potential or the opportunity to dispose of a firearm elsewhere. Not saying he did that, but he had the time and ability to, to do that.
0: Yeah. I mean, and that's, what's uh, the possibilities with this case are endless. And there's just not enough yet anyhow to, to solidify any one
1: theory. It's one of the most confusing cases that has just a bazillion possibilities because there seems to be so many people that could have a potential motive to want to harm this family. Most of it goes back to Paul Murdoch or potentially Paul Murdoch. We don't know if he actually was connected to what happened to Gloria, the housekeeper, or Stephen Smith, but there are rumors connecting him. So there are, you know, three families that could have been angry enough that might have wanted to exact revenge and may have been angry enough at this whole family because it looks like a lot of these are just kind of getting swept under the rug that the police seem to have a really cozy relationship with the Murdochs.
0: Yeah, it's... it's, um it's a typical Southern small town where uh, if you're in good standing and your your family's from that area and they have a hundred years of history there, that it seems like the police are going to initially at least be on your side and, you know, sort of take your back. But I think in this case, maybe even if that was the case initially, I think there, you know, after so much stuff, there came a time when they said, okay, we've got to, look at we've got to look at this guy for some of the stuff because this is just there's too much going on here
1: yeah and it just really creeps me out the way that he was described as acting after what happened when Mallory Beach was deceased and it was just like how Connor was saying like you're laughing or something like that or you find this funny you know my girlfriend's gone and you're laughing and it's almost chilling right thinking of somebody behaving in that way when somebody who you call your friend is potentially deceased. And not only that you have you've severely injured a lot of your friends and you just yeah. don't seem to care.
0: Yeah. And, and uh, again, maybe that's just the type of person he was that he didn't take stuff seriously because he had always been protected. Maybe because he was intoxicated. He was laughing. I don't know. Maybe if he had been sober, he would have realized the, the gravity of the situation. I, we just don't know.
1: In your episode, you drew a parallel to the affluenza guy. What was his name? Ethan something? Ethan Crouch?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just this family, you could sort of see that kind of at play. Here's this young, rich kid. He's the, one of the um, town's old-time uh, families. Uh, so he knows that he can coast you know, through life and that he doesn't necessarily know uh, what it's like to have responsibility and be held accountable for stuff because you get an easy path. So there, there may have been some of that at play. There's definitely uh, some shades of that, it seems like.
1: So are there any new developments or like breaking news in the case since then?
0: Well, it's, it's funny, at, at, as we we're recording the episode, we said at the end that there it wouldn't be surprising if there was something else that would come out. We we literally recorded it on a Thursday, released it on a Saturday, and said, you know, by the time you listen to this, there might be something else that comes out. Well, sure enough, there there was. Um, someone was arrested that supposedly uh, rumor was was connected uh, to Alec as his drug dealer, um, and I, I don't remember the guy's name off the top of my head, but um, he was arrested and charged uh, with assisting uh alec in a suicide attempt uh on top of some other drug charges he was also charged with one of the interesting things was that he uh made a bond for the drug-related charges but not um for anything to do with the the murders of the family or for the suicide he's still in jail and that was one of the weird questions we had because we're not uh, attorneys or legal experts why would someone you know, pay the bail for something, but not get released for prison. So that was sort of one you know, weird question we had because he's still in, in jail for that uh, and only paid bond for, for one set of crimes. But, and then after that uh, just, uh, it was maybe that day that the episode ran, I can't remember. Alec turned himself in, in connection with the the plot of whatever was going on with this assisted suicide uh, the rumor is, I don't know if it's a rumor if police officially said this. I even ha- had a chance to look. It's been a hectic couple of days. But uh, supposedly uh, there was an inkling that uh, that he was going to take his own life and uh, that the, there'd be $10 million in insurance going to Buster um, and that this was all some elaborate plot to uh as you said sort of be a family annihilator maybe after the fact and buster would be left standing at the end of the day with this 10 million dollars and start his life fresh who knows what he was you know what the plan was or if it's even accurate i don't know the police are uh confirming anything or, or saying anything solid at this point but it's just a a crazy roller coaster of a case and um I could tell in the days and weeks ahead, there's going to be more revelations.
1: That's so bananas, because if he was, if Alec was, you'd have to have a very special insurance plan with a suicide indemnity clause that would allow for you to get paid out, even with suicide, because most most insurance plans and insurance companies don't, unless there's a specific clause, because then people who are like terminally ill would go and do that. And then the time and they'd be paying out constantly. I'm assuming that's one of the reasons why I'm obviously not an insurance expert.
0: Yeah, I know there's there's a, a waiting period on some policies, like it will pay out on suicide, but not for the first year, things like that. Um, then again, maybe he was trying to have a suicide that looked like a homicide uh, and had someone shoot him uh, and then plan to collect that way, but maybe at the last second changed his mind or jerked his head and said, never mind, don't, I don't want to go through with it. Um, and it was a botched uh, suicide to look like a murder. Who knows? there's just so many crazy possibilities
1: and if he was addicted to opiates, it wouldn't be that difficult for him if he'd just come out of rehab and he wanted to end his own life. Unfortunately, that's a period in which a lot of addicts will end up dying by accident because their tolerance for drugs or alcohol isn't what it used to be, and they go back to the amount that they used to be using. and so if Alec had done that, had just taken a bunch of opiates, that could very easily be looked at as, oh, it was just an accident. So for him to get his drug dealer involved in this assisted suicide, it sounds so bizarre. I wish we knew more details about it.
0: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just
1: about anywhere.
0: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
1: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.
0: No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
1: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com.
0: Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yeah, it's it's one of those cases that you're going to have to really follow closely because I'm sure there's going to be a lot of things emerging, especially if it makes it to trial or there's any further Charges against him. Uh, if, if anyone's charged with the actual murders of his uh, Alex's uh, wife and son, uh, that'll be interesting to see who's uh, charged with that and where it goes from there.
1: One interesting thing we didn't talk about, too, which I wish I knew more about, was didn't the police search the Murdoch property and find some evidence potentially buried that's maybe connected to Stephen Smith's death?
0: Yeah, that's what's been reported. But again, they're being so tight lipped. It's not known what that is. Um, but it'd be interesting if it was a wallet or some of his personal belongings that are missing or something that sort of ties to him that maybe should have been with him when he was found. That wasn't, that would be, uh, something that that'll be pretty interesting going forward.
1: Yeah, this is one that I'll definitely have to keep my eye on because I feel like I've got a pretty good understanding of what happened now after I listened to your podcast and we've talked about it and I listened to Sinisterhood. Like I think I've got it, but there's so many moving parts that things feel like they change every minute.
0: Yeah, and that's the problem with, with fresh cases. We, on, on criminology, we try and we do a mix. We do uh, we're, We do a lot of old cases, unheard of cases, smaller cases. And then we'll do a lot of solved cases. Um, but we also like to do ones that people are talking about that they're interested in. Um, so, like, for example, this week, uh, we did the Murdoch case. Next week, we're going to do uh, Gabby's case. Because that's uh, people are talking about their interested in it. And we want to um, put something out that they're interested in and, and hear our take on it. But then we'll go back to an old school episode after that and do a, a solved serial ca- killer case or something from years ago. Um, so we sort of mix it up and 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 put a lot of different content out, whether it's solved, unsolved, brand new unfolding, or something that's older that a lot of people haven't heard of.
1: It's interesting with Gabby's case. I just read because, like everybody else, I've been checking the updates on everything that's happening. And that they've just said that the manner of death, like preliminary manner of death was homicide, but they haven't said that what the cause of death is yet. So that's really interesting. They've got to have some indication on the body right out the gate that this is a homicide.
0: Yeah, it's just, a, you know, I've been following this case because it's before it was all over the headlines and all over national news. I lived two towns over from her boyfriend's parents. So down here, it's been a little bit of a local story for a couple of weeks now. Um, before it really blew up. And and, uh, I sort of started looking at it then and started penciling in an idea to do a podcast about it. And that's sort of how it, and then it just blew up out of control after that and and really took uh, the media by storm. And, you know, I don't, I try not to, I try to keep an open mind. Everyone is innocent until proven guilty and give them the benefit of the doubt. But uh, yeah, I think this guy is guilty as shit. <laughs> you know, I just, there's, it's hard to have any kind of uh, um, to look at him in a positive light. Someone that's the love of your life is out there missing and you're going to say, sorry, I'm not talking about it. You, you just, in my mind, there's no doubt this guy is guilty and uh, obviously he's missing now. Um, so who knows? Is, is he on the run going to another country Or did he go out and take his own life someplace out in the woods? Um, I don't know, but I, I feel really terrible for her family. I know they've gone through a lot. And I talk to people that have murdered family members a lot, obviously, because of the shows I do. And I also talk to people that have missing family members. And as tough as it is to know that your child was murdered, to be able to bring them home, I think can give you some comfort. Whereas to just never find her, never know what happened to her and wonder all your, the rest of your life, where's my daughter? What happened to her? What, you know, I think that might be even tougher uh, for someone to go with, to, to go through the rest of their life. So at the very least, it's obviously not going to bring their daughter back, but I hope that they get some kind of peace out of being able to say a proper goodbye to her and having, um, having her come home. And, I hope he doesn't take the easy way out. I'd I'd really like to see him held accountable and go through the legal process. And if he's innocent and found innocent, so be it. But um, I I, I don't see him going that route. I think he's a a coward and I think he will never face justice, unfortunately.
1: What do you think about his parents' role in all this? Like say somehow must have helped facilitate him leaving the home because the press was very aware. They said that he took the car, but yet the car is found at the family home and they're saying he's at this reserve, but he hasn't been seen since what, like Tuesday or something. Right.
0: Yeah. And his parents are a whole nother issue. I mean, there's, there's a lot of people down here that are, I don't know how they're going to be able to live down here um, after this uh, shameful, for for what they did for not, I understand wanting to protect your child. You know, if if they did something, you know, and and you don't want them to go to prison for the rest of your life, obviously I can understand that. But at some point you've got to wake up and say, look, whatever happened happened. You can't change it, but um, you've got to do the right thing. Uh, maybe if you come forward, you can get a lighter sentence uh, for cooperating. And and you loved her, help her family out there was none of that as far as we know again i'm i'm sort of speaking prematurely because we haven't heard their side and i don't want to be that person that's assuming stuff but public perception in this case does not look favorable for for the family whatsoever and um i know there's people camping out at their home uh and i thought i thought about for a minute driving over there and uh maybe interviewing some people on the ground there just to get a uh, the take on, on what's going on there since it's not that far from me. Um, but I, I think people can see f- enough of what's going on, on on news that I don't need to do that. People are, are upset with this family, and I think rightfully so.
1: What do you think about how they located Gabby's body? Like, isn't that almost unbelievable? Like, the fact that those YouTubers managed to capture the footage of the van and then that somehow led police to where Gabby's body was located.
0: I, I I think that's why with these cases, you need to get as much exposure on them as soon as possible. Uh, the sooner, the better. You know, we did on um, Missing Persons, we did an episode on her case and put that out like uh, immediately. We did a quick follow-up on certain more developments. We put a follow-up episode out because it's crucial to get that word out there. And I had a, a, a little bit of dialogue with the family's attorney and you know, he sent us a couple statements and and we shared them and got the word out there because that time is crucial. You want to, as many people talking about the case as possible, as many people seeing her as possible. And I think in this case, that exposure helped to get these other people to come forward and say, hey, maybe we've got something here. Let's look what we have and see if we can help the police at all. And it looks like that's going to play a role in, in sort of helping to find Gabby.
1: Yeah. And I think you've got a very empathetic way and a very fact-based way about how you choose to approach current cases. And I think there's very much a divide with some people who you see it on TikTok, you see it on every different platform, the people who have gone and speculated wildly and spun some really outlandish theories about like, oh, it was, Gabby and Brian murdered Kaelin and Crystal, you know, in the park. And you hear those theories and it's like, this is absolutely baseless. You aren't helping the situation. And then there's coverage like yours where you're not speculating. You're just saying, this is what we know so far. Let's get the story out there.
0: Well, that's, that's what we tried to do. I mean, we could, you know, I I think the episodes we did were like 10, 15 minutes each um, because we didn't put speculation in and this theory and that theory and, Um, We wanted to be factual and just provide the details, provide people uh, with phone numbers to call um, to get Gabby's image out there, that kind of thing. That's what we wanted to do was play our part in just spreading the word. Um, We could easily make a long episode or a couple uh, episodes of speculation, uh, but we didn't want to do that.
1: Yeah, now you've got enough information. Now that Gabby's body has been found, it's been confirmed to have been Gabby. You know how the body was located. There's certainly enough material for you to go ahead and do a whole criminology episode on the case.
0: Yeah, and it's sort of going to be like the Murdoch one where the, the outcome isn't known at this point. Uh, you know, as long as he's still out there hiding and the family uses that term. Family said he's not missing. He's hiding. Um, and that's 100% accurate. He didn't just disappear or go out for milk one day and, and vanish. He ran. Uh, he uh, avoided the situation. Uh, whereas Gabby wasn't able to come home if she wanted. He's out there of his own free will. Um, so I, I don't really have any sympathy for him. Uh, and I hope he's found and I hope he faces justice. But my uh, gut feeling is he's not going to uh, face justice Um, take his own life before that happens
1: yeah that's kind of my feeling as well I feel like if he was going to face justice he would have come forward at some point because I don't know I mean we know that he likes to camp and was doing the whole van life and like to be barefoot and stuff but I don't know how much of a survivalist he actually is and how long he could be living in the outdoors with just whatever was on his back basically right
0: yeah, and I again, I and who knows? That's we're going by what the parents said he had with him. You know, I don't even think a lot of the stuff's confirmed. He could have had passports, money. Um, who knows what? You know, they've had him look in this swamp area, this wildlife area. Maybe he went someplace else. Although they sort of abandoned that search and then went back there again, so maybe they have reasonably that he actually did go there. But Florida, in the swamps, in the heat. Uh, it's not not a pleasant place, place to be. So if he's out there going to try and rough it and and survive uh, and live on, on live off the land, he's going to have a, an uphill battle. And um, who knows, maybe if he's trying it, maybe he'll just get fed up and, and just say, you know what, I'm just going to come forward because I can't live like this. And I'm going to do the right thing and come forward and turn myself in. But I doubt it. I hope that's the case, though.
1: Do we know if he had, like, any access to resources? Does the family have any degree of affluence?
0: I don't know that. Um, the town they live in is a pretty middle-class neighborhood. Their, their home looks, you know, just like most of the other homes in the area. Um, I don't know their, their economic status. I don't know if they have a, a lot of money or they're, they're wealthy. Um, but they seem to be like a lot of the other middle-class families there. Um, so I don't know that he'd have a lot of uh, unlimited resources to to sort of run and um, fund his escape, uh, so to speak.
1: What are your thoughts on the lawyer for the Laundrie family? I think he's not a criminal attorney, and he's out of Long Island. Is that correct?
0: Um, I think he is out of out of that area. Um, now, Gabby's, and I may, may, maybe I'm getting confused, or, or maybe we're getting the attorneys mixed up. Um, Gabby's family attorney is definitely out of Long Island.
1: Um, hey, maybe I'm and, getting them confused.
0: Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. He's definitely out of Long Island because her family's out of that area. Um, Brian lived down here in Florida, and um, Gabby moved down here to be closer to Brian. And then Gabby's dad, uh, who's divorced from Gabby's mom, actually moved down here as well to be closer to Gabby. Um, so he lives down in this area. But the attorney for, for Gabby's family is definitely from the Long Island area. And I don't know where the attorney is from for uh, Brian's family.
1: It's interesting because it just seemed to lawyer up pretty quickly. Like, I wonder what his family thought when he arrived home in this van that was I heard described as Gabby's van. But I don't know who actually owned the van. Like what his parents thought when he arrives home with this van without his girlfriend Gabby. And what does he say that prompts them to then get an attorney right away?
0: And the sad thing is we know now that he was home for quite a while. I think he was home for 10 days before everything sort of broke. And uh Gabby's family started saying, Hey, what's going on here? So he had plenty of time to be home with his family. And part of the mystery is how did he disappear out of the house? There's cameras all over the place with the film crews out there uh the the police you would think would have the home under surveillance yet he somehow slipped away and then when they said he slipped away it was like oh he slipped away three days ago it wasn't even he slipped away um you know last night or something like that Um, and then they of course they have this story that he was going to this wildlife area and then they drove there looking around and sure enough there's the car and they brought the car back home um i Who knows if any of that's real, if if that's all true, if they weren't. Again, I don't want to accuse these people of anything. Um, I hope the truth comes out, but who knows if they didn't um, help him to escape, help him to cover his tracks, help him to to flee to another country or to uh, another area to make it harder for him to be caught. I I don't know what's true. And um, unfortunately, the investigators haven't really disclosed too much of that. So it's all uh, a waiting game.
1: Well, it's such a national news story at that point where Brian was They're hoping to like, all reporters are out there hoping to catch a glimpse of Brian. And so how could he escape? Because they would have been there day and night, right? Like every hour of the I would, day. I would think
0: um, I, maybe they were around the back of the house, um, maybe snuck up a back at night and uh, made it into the woods over the fence or whatever. Um, and just got out that way. I have no idea. but but what's been reported, this is the part that's still a little bit confusing, is that he supposedly said he was going hiking um, and took the mustang to this wildlife area. I believe this happened while all the cameras would have been there already. Um, I'm, I'm trying to go back in my mind over the timeline and see if the cameras and the news media was there already. I believe it was. So you would think, Brian leaving someplace in a car, these, you just see a scene where these people jump in their news vans and chase after him and see where he's going. Uh, But apparently that didn't happen. Again, if this is all true, if what the parents are saying is true, um, this is what they say happened that he took the Mustang, went to the uh, uh, wildlife area. They went looking for him. They found the car, but didn't find him. And they brought the car home. That's uh, as I understand it, their story.
1: I mean, I guess it's possible that if the family, and I'm not saying they did, but if they did help facilitate his disappearance, they could have took both vehicles out, their vehicle and the Mustang, put Brian in the trunk, then dropped him off at the reserve, left the one vehicle and then been like, Hey, look, we found it. Here it is. Let's bring it back.
0: Yeah. And, and the FBI definitely was interested. They impounded that Mustang for whatever reason. Now, the, uh, a Mustang trunk is pretty small. He looks like a pretty thin, small guy. He could probably fit in there, but it probably wouldn't be easy. But I, I'm trying to remember if the house has a garage or not. I have, every video or picture I've seen, the like, Mustang seemed to be parked out front. Um, so I don't know that it was ever parked in the garage. So I don't know how they would sneak him into the trunk um, unless it had been in the garage. And then they put him in there when it was in the garage. But I've never seen it in the garage. It was always out in the front. So I'd have a hard time figuring out how he got into the trunk if they tried to sneak him out.
1: But what if they took both vehicles at the same time? Like, say, I don't know what other vehicles they drive. But if they left at the same time, one driving the Mustang, one driving the other vehicle, he could have Hmm. got, if they do have a garage, into the trunk of the other vehicle. Then they just park the Mustang there. Then they leave. And I mean, obviously, I don't know that this happened. I'm wildly speculating, but.
0: Yeah, and I know from the video I've seen, it looks like they have a pickup truck and a Mustang. Um, so hiding someone in a pickup truck, obviously they would fit in there, but you you might see them if, if you're a camera crew. It seems like you would see them climbing up into the truck and then laying down, something like that. Um, and I've again, the, all the footage I've seen, the vehicles are out in the driveway. So I can't remember if they have a garage, or maybe they just didn't use the cars uh, in the garage. Maybe they didn't park them in there. Um, I've always seen them out front. So it seems to me like it would be difficult one way or another to sneak him out without that crew uh, of news people being aware of it. So, again, could they have, you know, maybe one scenario is, and again, I'm I'm speculating now, too, but maybe he snuck out through the backyard and they went out and met him someplace and then from there drove him. Who knows? And that's what's going to be interesting about what comes out. Um, like I said, his family's catching a lot of heat down here, um, uh, rightfully so. I think it's despicable what they're doing uh, to help them if they have covered up, if they know what he's done. And if there's any charges they can face for somehow hindering the investigation, I'd, I wouldn't mind seeing them charged. Um, I think it's just terrible to, to help facilitate a cover-up of, of Gabby's murder.
1: Yeah, and like we're going based on what these parents who may be be helping cover for their son. So when they say that he's at this reserve, we're going off of what they say and we're trusting them at their word. He might be somewhere completely different, and this could just be misdirection.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And again, the the police searched this area and then they stopped, but then they went back there. So I don't know if they have additional information that makes them think he really did go there. Um, I don't know. Um, I heard an interesting comment by someone on uh, one of the channels. They said that the, the, the family was brought out of their home and put into one of the FBI cars while well, they searched their home. And the point they made was that there's no right to privacy in that FBI vehicle. So if they were listening, if the FBI was listening somehow to whatever conversation was going on in the car between the parents, while the search was being done inside the house, they could have spilled some beans on something. Um, and maybe the, the police gained some information that way. Again, that was something interesting I heard. I don't know if that's really what happened, but um, it was certainly an interesting uh, possibility.
1: That's super interesting. I'd never even heard that before, but that makes sense. If they'd stopped searching that area, then they went back. They could have, because if you're nervous, somebody searching your home and you aren't aware that legally you don't have a right to privacy. I think a lot of people would be, if they had helped cover for their son, they'd be discussing the trouble they could get into or what could have been found, where he might be. So they could have got a plethora of information from them sitting in that backseat.
0: Yeah, and um, it it could have been something as simple as, um, you know, let's get our story straight. If anyone says this, this is what we're going to say. If we get arrested, this is what we're going to say, blah, blah, blah. But maybe they didn't game plan for what if they serve a warrant on my house and they set me inside their car. Maybe they didn't, weren't aware of that and didn't think about, um, is this car, do they have a, a bug in here someplace? Are they listening to our conversation? Maybe they didn't think about that. And while, they were, while their house was being searched, maybe they had a conversation of, oh, uh, we have to make sure we don't tell them that we did this or that, or hopefully they don't go looking at so such and such place again. Um, who knows what, and again, it's speculation, maybe the FBI didn't even bug their car. I don't know if that's, that was just an interesting observation. I heard that from someone that sounded like a reasonably good way to, to get information from someone that wasn't willing to talk would be to bring them out of their own house and stick them into your car as an FBI agent and have them talk in there and then use that information to help your investigation.
1: So when do you have your criminology episode coming out on Gabby Petito?
0: That's supposed to come out this Saturday, the, um, uh, look at the calendar here, the 25th of September.
1: Okay. So this won't be out for a while. So I'll link the episodes of the Murdoch murders and of Gabby Petito's case from criminology in the show notes. So you can I'll go and listen because obviously this isn't a narrative episode. We haven't covered every little detail of the case. So I recommend you go back and listen to the criminology episodes because you'll get a lot more details than we were able to cover here.
0: Yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's definitely a crazy case. If you're uh, someone that is following these cases and, um, you want to hear sort of a condensed, uh, up-to-date version without a lot of speculation. That's what we try to do. So hopefully, anyone listening will will take that away from it.
1: So well, I want to thank Mike Morford for coming on the show and talking with me about all of these different cases. Thank you so much, Morph.
0: Uh, thank you, Jules. Anytime.
1: So, is there anything you're working on new right now that you want to talk to the listeners about?
0: Um, yeah, I'm always working on something else. Um. But right now, I'm, I'm stretched about as, as far as I can be without uh, committing to any new projects. I'm always looking for different stuff, but um, time-wise, it's, uh, it's a challenge. Uh, my, my next hopeful uh, thing that's going to happen is the Zodiac case will be solved, and that'll be good to clear one off the, the books, a uh, big, well-known case that's 50 years old. And I think when you could solve that kind of case that's 50 years old, it just gives you hope that you can solve almost any case out there. That's that's out there on the book still. So that's what I'm hoping for.
1: So this is a new suspect, like one that's not commonly mentioned.
0: Yeah. This is a new suspect that I found through doing uh, some geo geo profiling and uh, uh, found some stuff that matched uh, to Zodiac and uh, some connections with addresses. And, um, Things that he posted online, things of that nature. And, um, I, I, you know, a lot of people have confidence that the suspect they find in the zodiac cases is, is, is interesting. Uh, you know, I've looked at hundreds and hundreds of different zodiac suspects. Um, and this is the first time I've been able to say that I think I found the right guy. So, uh, I'm working with uh, law enforcement on that to, to get him cleared, uh, or for them to make a connection.
1: That's super exciting. I can't wait to hear how this pans out. I hope that you did find the individual so they can get some closure and some resolution on all of these open unsolved cases.
0: Yeah. Like I said, anytime you can solve a 50 something year old case, it just seems like anything's possible. So a lot of these other 200,000 cold cases in the United States start clearing some of them up.
1: So where can the listeners find you on social media?
0: Well, um, uh, Twitter, I'm a big Twitter user. Um, I have an all around uh, Twitter handle, which is true crime guy at, at true crime guy. And I sort of have one for each podcast, but that would be like 20 minutes <laughs> to run down uh, that. But the, the all around one that you can find me on is at true crime guy. And I sort of connect to all my other different uh, Twitter feeds as well. So uh, people can definitely find me there.
1: I want to thank you all for listening. I would love to hear from you all. If any of you have anything to say about the case, any thoughts, you can reach out to me at riddlemethatpod at gmail.com or I'm really, really active on Twitter. So please follow me. I'll follow you back at Podcast Riddle. And I just wanted to let you all know if you're unaware, I don't have a Riddle Me that Patreon, but I have a Patreon with Dr. Ashley Wellman. So at the $3 level, you get early access ad-free episodes at the $5 level. There's a Jules and Ashley, where either Ashley will tell me a story or I'll tell Ashley a story. And it will be conspiracy theories solved, unsolved, kind of a little bit of everything. At the $10 level, there's a Pathwind Chili Mini. So we'll have Robin joining us for that. So we're really, really excited. I will link that in the show notes. So until next time, stay safe and remember, accept nothing, question everything. Music by Jobbers.